If you've made it this far, thanks so much for listening to the podcast. We are supported by Projectile Warehouse. So if you guys could go over and check out their page, uh, follow them on YouTube and all of the uh, social medias, that would be fantastic. We are back with uh, Steve Hurt from Outer Edge Projectiles. Thanks for coming on again. We wanted to follow up from what was a very interesting podcast uh, last time. So we're just going to keep diving in. Mate, thanks for coming back. Thank you. Been a lot of fun so far, and I'm looking forward to the game. Yeah, sweet. All right, well, we'll, we'll uh, charge on. We, we sort of mentioned at the end of the last podcast that we were going to get you to step through, basically your process on how you how you how you load, and also how you suggest other people load, and what the things are they need to find and establish before they start building a load. Um, not just specifically for copper projectiles, but um, general, but general as well. Yep. Um, if there are specifics that you feel like you do or need to do differently for your projectiles versus uh, lead projectiles, then by all means point out those differences. But if mm. you have a process that you do for both, um, walk us through that. Well, generally speaking, the, the reloading process is pretty universal. Um, where major discrepancies or differences were perceived, um, those beliefs uh, or paradigms are rapidly disappearing. So basically, in my view, the most important thing is to match your bullet to your barrel. You're not going to get good results if your bullet isn't stable. In our particular product, we uh, label uh, on the box and on all our information what barrel twist this particular bullet was intended for. Other manufacturers do it, some don't. Um, but in my view, it is probably the most important place to start. So now that you've chosen your bullet based on your existing resources or where it is you want to go, that bullet selection now fixed and that moves on to stage two. And stage two is setting your jump to the lands. Now, jump to the lands is open to a lot of discussion and conjecture. But more and more science is being applied and more and more testing and more and more measurement is being applied. And where we thought that uh, the principles of a 40 to 60-thou jump, and I like to start at 50, uh, was unique to copper, I've seen research conducted by others uh, using um, conventional cup and core uh, projectiles that have indicated that very similar results should be expected in the same process. Mm -hmm. So it's not that you can't get good results with much longer or much shorter jumps, but the most flexible, the most reliable and consistent results are going to be achieved, generally speaking, in that 40 to 60,000 jump. So I like to start at 50. So now the bullet has been matched to the barrel. Mm -hmm. You then have that bullet to, uh, in, inserted into your case uh, set to that 50,000 magic mark to start with anyway. Now you have a fixed case capacity, right? Now you've got that fixed case capacity. You're not going around in circles chasing your tail by varying it by adjusting your jump to the lands. Once that case capacity is known, uh, whether you're doing it by trial and error or calculation, it doesn't really matter. You're going to get to that uh, ideal nodal point much more quickly if you're varying one variable at a time instead of two. Yes. So so um, what you're saying is like when people do a 
quite often they'll do a powder depth charge or whatever, mm. a, a powder um, level yep. uh, powder, test, yeah, yeah powder, like a ladder test, yep. um, and they will also be changing seating depth at the same time. And what you're saying is you're actually changing the internal case capacity and pressure and volume by pushing the bullet either further in or further out. And you're not actually achieving anything no. because you're changing two variables and you don't know what effect one is having mm-hmm. in isolation. Mm-hmm. And the only way you can do that is to change one at a time. So you'll start with a 50,000 jump number. Which is basically, you know, one. We'll, we'll, we'll call it... Um, uh, 1.3 to 1.5 millimetre jump. Yep, and then you will run a powder ladder test at mm-hmm. that at that one that one seating depth. Mm-hmm. Find your flat spot in your node for your powder, and then once you've done that, is that when you then start playing with that little bit of variance in the seating depth? No, the uh, well, it, that is exactly what happens. But the next step down the track, yes, okay, the, yep. the intermediate step in between is to prep your brass, yeah, for consistency, yeah. So you know, you need to know your uh, your bump. Yeah. You need to know that the brass you're using is consistent and not variable. It all needs to be one brand, one batch, if possible. Uh, and which we see happen a lot. A lot <laughs> of people have factory ammo that they've shot out in three different brands, and then yeah, they think, "Oh, got, I'll just use all the brass and try and." It's and, and they've all got different case capacities, and wonder mm. why they can't get consistent groupings. Mm. Um, hunters tend to do that more often than target shooters, um, but. I think the other thing that at, at the next level is that some brands of brass, while they might be really consistent within the batch, may vary from batch to batch. Okay. Right. So it's important that if you have to move on to another batch, that you cross-reference and check it. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, some brands of brass, particularly European, uh, European brass, uh, will often be extremely consistent from batch to batch, year to year. Absolutely wonderful, happy days. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen some uh, batches of American brass that were actually really good within itself, mm-hmm. but the next batch was different. And that's in and of itself not a disaster as long as you know, yep. because you then have to recalibrate. Yep. Yep. Um, so we had some questions on one of the info nights about how to best way to establish finding the measurement of uh, the lands, where the lands are mm-hmm. uh, in your particular rifle. Um and it varied in ways to do that. Yep. Do you have a preferred method on how you do it? Yes, I do. Um, people use OJIVE comparators and all that kind of stuff. No, because our stuff is CNC turned, uh, there is absolutely no point in doing it because it's so consistent. So the only OJIVE comparator we really use is the chamber. Yeah. Um, so, so you let the chamber and the bullet tell you? Tell us what the, uh, what the uh, engagement is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's one of those things that you do have to be careful and it's a little bit of experience and feel is involved, but you remove the pin, the firing pin. Yep. Uh, you're not using a loaded case, of course. There's no powder or primer in it, but you remove the firing pin and you remove the ejector pin and spring because that can give you false readings because it tends to... Uh, the ejector pin applies pressure mm. to the uh, to the back of the head. Yeah. Uh, and... There's a little bit of play because if there wasn't a little bit of play or tolerance, you wouldn't be able to close a, a, a loaded cartridge into the chamber. So there's a little bit of slop there. So what you're basically looking to do is feed that consistently and not be introducing the variable of the uh, the plunger, oh, sorry, the ejector pin and the spring. Yep. 
and a little bit of change of thickness in in the uh, in the brass head can give you distorted uh, readings in that okay. regard. Right? Yeah. So you've assuming that you've prepped your case they're all the same length they've been and your dies have been set correctly the firing pin the uh, the ejector pin and the spring have all been removed you see to get you seat the the pill out too far yep and you very carefully and gently uh, close the bolt and you probably you are not going to be able to yeah but you want to know how close you are to be able to getting that bolt to reach the bottom of its stroke cycle uh, and just just feel uh, interference yep. at the bottom of that cycle with just two fingers lightly yep. applied. And this is obviously more challenging with VLD bullets than it is uh, standard type hunting bullets, Yeah, but it's still possible to do. Now you know, when once you've been through that process, and it's something you, um, it's, it's easier to show than to talk about, yep. but once that engagement is just sensed, yep. now you know where it's kissing the lands. Yep. So from, so that, from there, I then back it off uh, a specified amount, which is normally, well, when I say one point three, that's rounded. It's normally about one point two seven millimeters. Yeah, that's my uh, starting point. Yeah, uh, and sometimes I'll suit it in just a little bit more. Yeah, because although uh, a jump of forty to sixty is the overwhelming majority of the time uh, the ideal. Uh, I like to use 50 because it's smack in the middle of the zone. Uh, and if you start at 60 and get everything tickety-boo, the issue is that your throat's going to wear. Mm -hmm. right, so it's better if you can start a little bit... Further uh, forward so you've got time for that throat to erode correct. forward and it's still to shoot good groups. So for anyone that's listening that's sort of struggling to follow along... Because um, you're right, if you see someone do it, it kind of makes a lot more sense. So you mm. essentially you've stripped the bolt out so that if you had um, no case, no no bullet in there, you just run the bolt forward and your bolt will just drop down. It drops yes, down into correct. place because it's not. You know, if it's if the brass is properly sized, that, yeah, that's exactly what yeah. happened. Yeah, and then you see the projectile in that case out. Uh, too long, so you know it's going to be way yeah. too long, and you find okay, then you see it a little you bit just, more. You, you just gently keep, keep coming ring. back. And in the early stages, they might be big, quite big jumps, but toward the end, it's going to be very, very, very small. And you'll find that difference between if, you, if you're not touching the lands at all, the bolt will still continue to fall all the way down and not you know, have any force. But if you're just touching the lands, you'll, you'll feel you, that you, last You can little, feel that last little bit of resistance. Yeah, little yeah. resistance. As the bolt's falling, it'll, it'll catch. As yeah. it's camming over and falling into place, it'll, it'll, it'll just, just catch a little bit. And now, you, now you've got your reference marker. <laughs> yep. And that's what you base your measurement then on. Then you start pushing back from there. And and, and like, you've got to remember there's a little bit of play there yeah. because um, you can use micrometers for for small dimensions, but when you're talking about cartridge overall length, you tend to, you end up using verniers. Mm -hmm. Well, they're only accurate to 0 0.01 plus or minus, so that's 0 0.02. There's a little bit of play there. Yeah. It's not that critical. Yeah, well, I think I think that's something that we've spoken about. About you, you just need to find that starting point. And and look, if the worst case scenario is you can't figure this concept out, and you do use a Hornady overall case case length gauge, so what? There's there yeah. like there, there is. It's not the ideal, but if you get yourself some sort of reference point for a starting number yep. of of base to yeah, the lands. Now you've got a reference point, you to, a work, reference point to, to work, work forward or in that window from. of that 40 to 60 tower jump. This gets way more complicated. And like you said, 
there's guys shooting tiny little bug hole, you know, one hole groups with the bullets jammed into the lands. That's fine. You can totally do that. People will do that and get very great results, but it gives you less wiggle room. So what you think could be a, a five foul jam might actually be a fifteen foul jam. Well, and the other, so the, the other thing too about it is that um, that's fine for bench resters. They're in that. They're in a different context. They've got access to much greater resources. If things don't go exactly to plan, um, the truck's behind them, or the reloading room is in there, and they they can make adjustments. But when you're in the field, that's not going to happen. The other thing too is that when you um, have the the bullet suited very close to the lands, in near or around, uh, with a very very small jump, it's much less flexible to um, changes in atmospherics. So if the temperature increases or all sorts of a whole bunch of variables that change. Um, a group that shot really well with a very, very tight tolerance uh, with a massive change in either uh, uh, temperature or the number of rounds fired or something along those lines starts to become very, very sensitive or it can become very sensitive. But in that zone of between 40 and 60 thou, you find really good levels of accuracy and a much broader range of tolerance to uh, atmospheric changes and conditions. The other thing too is that um, for, from a hunting perspective particularly, um, if you make a mistake and suit it too far out and jam the bullet into the lens for whatever reason mm -hmm. and it gets stuck when you go to eject the case, you've got a problem that's extremely challenging to address Yeah, because... Very few, if any hunters that I know, actually walk around with a cleaning rod in their backpack. Yeah, yeah. to be able to push the projectile <laughs> to out. Push, yeah, so these are These are just absolutely and totally unacceptable um, uh, possibility scenarios that must be avoided at all costs. Yeah. But have a little bit more... You're, you're dancing closer to the edge in, in the bench rest situation... But you've got you've also got more resources and and uh, ways of uh, dealing with that that you don't have in the bush. Yeah, yeah. There's been a lot of research I've referenced it here in the podcast quite a few times about bullet jump re, uh, re yep. research and how they're finding that there is those those longer jumps sometimes, like you're saying, give you that flexibility where everything from forty thou that window can be huge. It's forty thou through to, to seventy, you know, yeah. in that and that everything in there shoots well, whereas. You load it 15 thou or 20 thou off the lens might be amazing, but then 25 thou, 30 thou are absolutely garbage. Or or, or, or even closer at 17 or 16. And yeah. you're talking about a very much smaller margin. Yeah, sometimes you can't run that kind of tolerance in mm. your actual, you know, seeding die. Yeah, and, yeah. and of course that all becomes problematic uh, from the perspective that with throat wear. And if you're using an uncoated bullet, for instance, there's some conjecture, but... Um, as a rough rule of thumb, you get about five thou of wear for every hundred bullets. Yeah, wow. You're fired. So if your load is absolutely critically jump sensitive to the tune of plus or minus a couple of three or four thou mm. uh, at, at closed, um, at, with a closed jump, you'll find that you spend your whole life chasing the lands. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you're working in that 40 to 60 zone, mm -hmm. then you have a much greater uh, level of flexibility. Uh, you're not chasing the lands all the time. You're not re-evaluating your loads all the time. Yeah. And we've come up with some incredibly uh, precise 
results um, with these uh, longer jumps. And the surprise to us is we thought this was unique to copper bullets. Yeah. But it's actually uh, – we didn't do that much development work with uh, jacketed lead bullets because it's not, no, it's not our market. But only to find that other people and other competitors the have done the, done the same sort of work. Yeah. And we looked at the results of both and went – Oh, look at that. Yeah. Well, and something I found interesting was like um if you look at the if you look at the length of factory ammo, good factory ammo, let's take Hornady mm. Hornady match ammo uh, is is very is relatively decent factory factory uh, uh, ammunition. Uh, yeah. Um in its intended purposes, you, you know, your 65 Creed, your 6 Creed factory ammo, it, it shoots pretty well in most guns. Now, they've had to do a lot of research to make that ammo because they don't know what gun it's going in. All they can base it off is a Sammy spec chamber, you know, and, and so they've done so much research around, okay, we need this to work across not just one gun, mm. but the broader spectrum of guns possible. And I think you'll find when you measure those rounds... They're all in that zone. They're in that zone of yeah. 50 thou plus jumps, sort of. And you just don't have that flexibility when you're talking... Uh, uh, 15 off, 5 in, no. yeah. uh, plus or minus 3, it just doesn't work. No, and the, and those bigger jumps, that factory ammo, you might shoot amazing in one rifle and kind of okay in another. Yeah. But very rarely does it does that high-grade match factory ammo go, nah, my gun flat out will not shoot it. If, if it's twist rate dependent, if it's obviously... Yeah, as long as, as long as you've matched the bullet to the, to the barrel twist, yeah. that's generally uh, true. Yeah, it'll shoot pretty well. So, okay, so now that we've sort of established the zone you want to be playing in, seeding depth mm. what's your process for you've you've got an initial powder charge what, that you want to start with what do you base that initial charge off of well because it's our product mm -hmm. uh, we've had to go and do all the preliminary homework yeah uh, as opposed to um, somebody who's trying our product as an end user without any of the technical background behind them so there's a number of ways you can go about doing it but what we do and we publish our load data Right, but load data is absolutely of no value unless you know the parameters. So, um, uh, and by that I mean case capacity is a critically important one. Uh, when you look at some cartridges and brands of cartridges, there can be an enormous range of case capacity. So we actually nominate the cases that we used. So. Uh, Typically, uh, Lapour brass, which is outstanding quality, is slightly, ever so slightly lower in case capacity than, say, another brand. So we've done that in the in the 6.5 Creedmoor. We found that the case, and in the 308, uh, and we found that the case capacity in the Lapour was slightly less than, say, the Hornady or the ADI or the Winchester. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't make it good, bad, right or wrong, but you do need to know what it is. Mm. All right? So if you're dealing with 54.4 grains of case capacity as opposed to 56, that's obviously going to have an influence on mm. how much where, where you start and where you finish. Mm -hmm. uh, and another example of it too is that, uh, and, and, and a really classic diabolical example was the old 300 Win Magnum. Uh, one brand of American brass had a case capacity of uh, 88 grains, of, of water, yeah, and one of the European brands uh, was ninety five point six or seven, which yeah, is right. you know, it's, it's, it's a, a huge, huge percentage of that case. And that doesn't mean to say that uh, one would shoot and the other one wouldn't. What it means is if you mix those loads up and put uh, without knowing and yeah. put the ninety eight uh, put the, and put the ninety five point seven ninety eight 
Uh, the charge that's in the bigger case. And then put it in the 88 grain ca- case, all of a sudden things go pear-shaped and you sit back scratching your head and wondering why. What's going on, yeah. So, it's, so the first thing is really important is that you use the one brand of brass. Yep. Keep your batches consistent. Know what your case capacity is. And now you've got a benchmark to start experimenting with. So... Um, high quality, um, a, a minimum starting point is a good quality reloading manual. That's a minimum starting point. And you'll notice that the variations are often quite wide um, because they'll nominate, say, brand A of brass. But five years ago, the case capacity in this particular batch was X, but now it's yep. Y. Yep. And the other thing that influences what your minimum and maximum is, is the temperature at which you're going to be hunting. And the reloading manuals and the factory ammunition ma- uh, manufacturers have absolutely no idea whether you're hunting in the snow in the Alps or in or in uh, just to the east of Arnhem Land chasing buffalo. They've got no idea yeah. where you're going to be. So they have to come up with a load that's going to, fit that's going safely to be safe both at those. both ends of the equation. Uh, so it becomes uh, a one-size-fits-all uh, scenario which is limiting to ultimate performance but generally good enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and and their first and foremost requirement is, is that it's safe. Yeah. The second requirement, of course, then becomes all the consequential performance issues. And you can narrow those down and fine-tune them as a reloader but you've got to start with the metrics of What's the case capacity? What's the influence of the seating depth on that case capacity? And then in our case, um, we start with a, uh, a particular brand of brass nominating the case capacity. And then we say on our website, if you're using a different brand of bla- brass, please measure your case capacity. And if it varies significantly to what we use, we will calibrate, recalibrate your load for you. Oh, wow. Right? Yeah. Uh, because it's our, in our interest to keep yeah uh, keep everyone get, safe keep, yeah. keep everybody safe and give yeah. and get them the, because the but just so people know something I didn't realize either or like not to stop you but just jump in on this is that low pressure can be very very dangerous as well it can be and I didn't didn't realize that but if you are under pressure because you need a certain amount of pressure to get that ball up and moving and out of the barrel and yep. if it doesn't move far enough it only jumps in and doesn't have enough oomph behind it to keep it going down the barrel and stops you get what do they call it? Secondary ignition and things uh, like that, or they're, they're, they're kind of a little bit confused. Okay. Um, uh, if you get a bullet stuck in your barrel, you're in a whole new world of shit. Pain. Yeah. 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 Um, and that's that's just not a place you don't want to go. But very very fast powders <coughs> will often um, give you a greater flexibility in case volume fill rate mm-hmm. uh, with a relatively broad margin for error mm-hmm. but the slower the powder the higher percentage of case fill you need to create that pressure and, to and if get. you somehow got the powder mixed up or you got a squib load because in your powder thrower you didn't notice that only half the load went in because it, it got hung up that's when you end up with the squib load detonation uh, potential and if you're running a slow powder in a big case capacity like, or a larger case capacity like a 300 wind magnum, all of a sudden you've gone from yeah uh, a broad range of pressures that may be okay to, oh dear. Yeah. Um, a squib load 
with slow powders in big case capacities is not healthy, not a happy place to be. Yeah. Um, so your, your burning rate and your case fill is critically important and it's essential to know where you're starting from. Mm-hmm. Now, in our case, we use five programs to do to run on a simultaneous equation to calculate our, our starting point. This is stuff that's pretty much irrelevant to the customer, um, but it, it's a shortcut for us to develop our load development, and then we go and test it, and we confirm that it's um, that this window is so wide and it starts here and finishes there, and we test it across <coughs> um, extraordinary ranges. Uh, well, we test it at zero degrees, we test it at 40 degrees, uh, just to make sure that the, there are no issues at either end. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, the um, the ultimate performance will be um, in in the zone that we like to test in for ultimate accuracy, which is normally between fifteen and twenty degrees. But that's only because it's a midpoint for here in this country. Yeah. Um, but that load recommendation might be different to somebody hunting in North America or Canada or Alaska because their conditions are quite different and their pressures need to be brought up to the same standard, but that would be with a completely different load, mm-hmm. even using the same materials. Mm-hmm. When you're doing your, your ladder test with your powder charge, what uh, size charge weight jumps are you normally doing? Obviously, it's going to be different. If you're doing a magnum versus something small, it's going to be different. Yeah, but is yeah. it, are you normally jumping in 0.2 or are you going 0.1 grains as you... No, well, basically, um, because... Uh, uh, computer programming is extremely uh, sophisticated. We normally have a very much narrower band to start and finish with. So where, whereas a, a reloading manual might start at, say, 45 grains of powder uh, A uh, and finish at, say, 50 grains of powder, our recommendations might start at 46 and finish at 48. Yep. So it's a very much narrower band. Because you've done that research on websites like Optimal Barrel Time and stuff like uh, that, those yeah, sort we of run, programs we, and things? We, or? We, run, um, uh, we run Quick Load, we run OBT, we also run um, three other programs, yeah, wow. which are uh, in, a, in a whole other world. And the objective in running a simultaneous equation is to get all the critical points to line up. Mm-hmm. Once those critical points line up, the window either side is generally very, very small. So the uh, optimal result for minimum and maximum is generally one and a half, two grain apart. Yeah. And we go up in half grain increments in, a, in an average sort of case, like a 308 or, or, or perhaps something a little bit larger at first because the burning rate of powder from batch to batch uh, with the powders that are commonly available to us um, Whilst they are extremely good, they do vary. And we need to calibrate the burning rate of the powder against the standard. And, and if it varies 2%, we can adjust it for that particular application, but we don't adjust it for general publication because their batch might be yeah, 2% the other way. Yep. So it has to, still has to be within that, say, two-band uh, sorry, two grain band. Yeah, but it's very unusual for it to step outside that. Mm-hmm. So we st- we start that, 
That's a shortcut. We generally are able to get uh, our product to shoot extremely well in less than 25 rounds in our testing. But we have to have that sophistication to get there because we don't have two or three days. Yeah, the resources. uh, For for absolutely every every projectile in every cartridge option because you're you're going from 140 products to uh, however many different cases and cartridges and wildcats Mm. and all the rest of it out there. And by the time you extrapolate all that out, you're going to go mad. Yeah. So we've got to get to it fairly quickly. Whereas uh, a hunter uh, or somebody who's involved in target shooting when only using one or two rifles mm-hmm. doesn't need to spend the thousands of dollars on the tricky stuff and can go through the, the ladder testing. Uh, or uh, a lot of them will either have, be able to beg, borrow, steal a, um, a lab radar or, a, a, magneto or speed. a magneto speed or something along those lines, which will accelerate the process without having to spend silly amounts of, of, of money to get there, to get to the same result. Mm-hmm. Uh, i got a question for you that's sort of on my mind, is when it comes to an accuracy point of view, is, a, is case fill a very important topic? As far as if you can have a load that has a slow-burning powder, almost a complete case fill, so you're taking out variants, Versus a load that doesn't have, you know, it's a fast powder. There's less in the case, so the case could be lying on its side. The powder's sort of not. You know, is, is case fill critical to accuracy, or have you seen that it's that's not so much the case? There's been a number of uh, examinations on that subject. Uh, for me, the jury is out. Mm-hmm. Uh, but some of the uh, testing that I've seen uh, seems to challenge that notion. Uh, and the faster the powder, um, the less important it appears to be. Okay. The only reason we get connected to or attached to case fill is not so much from an accuracy point of view, but from a safety point of view, particularly when you're going to the larger cases and slower powders. Right. Right. So if well, even I like with my six five Creed. I used 2209. Yep. I accidentally double-charged a case the other day because I didn't move my funnel over to the next yeah. piece of brass. You can't actually double-charge it, the case. It's not possible. Because it starts coming yeah. up the funnel and over the top. So then you go, oh, well, shit. Whereas if I was using something slower... Faster. If, oh, sorry, faster. Yeah, yeah. you double-charge a case. <laughs> well, probably not because even in things like 2206H, 8208 or 2208, uh, you still couldn't get a double-charge double into the there. case. But yeah. uh, you might be sitting at 88 or 90% depending on the powder. Yeah. Um, and if there's a difference in accuracy, I've yet to see the case for it. Okay. Yeah. The application of case fill, we consider primarily from a safety p- perspective rather than accuracy perspective. Uh, and I, I'm not saying that, that, that it's completely invalid, but I haven't seen any v- uh, evidence for it. The... Running a shorter case, like a smaller case, like mm-hmm. the BR-based stuff or these you know, short magnums and whatever. So the idea then isn't behind, is the logic behind that not necessarily a case fill thing. It's a, it's a more an efficiency, like you're creating a more efficient boiler room. So you are burning that powder more in the case rather than you know, down the barrel? Like, what's the, what's, the, what's the theory behind Like, you've got a 300 wind mag, which is like a long, slender case, and then you've got these short magnums, which is the same amount of case like powder in there or close to, but in a lot shorter stack. The column's wider and it's not as long. 
why are they making changes to that? What's the efficiency they're getting by doing that? It's a bit of a Pandora's box because there are the parameters outside of the case itself or the cartridge that's itself uh, also at play, but we'll come back to that. Mm-hmm. Yes, a shorter fatter one is theoretically um, more efficient. Sharper shoulder cases, um, reduced brass flow, generally speaking. Um, <clears throat> and yes, there is some validity to it, but some of the most amazing groups I think I've ever seen have been in old-fashioned cartridges and mm. old-fashioned cases, uh, which are still working very well today mm. uh, and extremely competitive. Why don't you tell everyone what your favourite uh, rifle is? My favourite rifle is a Ruger Number One, but yeah, my favourite favorite car- caliber, yeah, my favourite cartridge is a seven B fifty seven. Yeah, <laughs> and, that, and that cartridge has been around since eighteen ninety three, yeah. and used by the military in Europe uh, uh, for a, a long time there and then, mm-hmm. and it's still a very popular hunting cartridge around the world uh, yep. today. Um, is there anything special or magical about it? No, it's just. Yeah, that's uh, that particular rifle and that particular cartridge is something that I'm really comfortable and confident in. But if somebody says, "Oh, I prefer the 308 or or, or something else," I, I shrug my shoulders and say, "Yep, whatever." Yeah, yeah, uh, you're not fixed hard and fast, yeah. hard and fast. No, I, I I don't believe there's any magic in it. Um, yes, there are some basically sound engineering and technical issues as to you would, why you would want to go down that way, but I think it's a little bit oversold marketing-wise. Okay. And one of the external parameters that I'll come back to now is that um, the firearms that are out there have one, two, three, four basic, five if you stretch it, magazine standard magazine lengths. So when they develop a cartridge, they're trying to make it fit a particular magazine. <laughs> so it's one of the defining factors which influences... Uh, the end result uh, the, the, the case and cartridge yeah. uh, and so if you are absolutely wedded to this idea that you've got to have a short action then the only way that's going to happen is if you've got a short case a short fat case right so that's a big part of the equation um, and the other th- part of the equation is something that there was a discrepancy in the logic or the thinking between Europe and America. America had this view that they shoot long distances in big open country and they had to drive the bullet as far fast as possible uh, to, to make it reach out as far as possible. So they put the biggest, longest case they could possibly fit inside a particular um, action or magazine. But that substantially reduced your ogive uh, length and shape, which meant that you were trying to drive a short, stumpy, poor BC, low-efficiency bullet at maximum velocity. And the Europeans went the other way. They tended to use a mid-range case length, Mm -hmm. allowing a much longer uh, ogive and a much more efficient uh, uh, bullet shape, not driven quite so hard. Uh, and you know, I don't want to get into America versus Europe, but <laughs> they, they, it was a completely different ethos. And which one you prefer depends pro- largely on, I think, where you came from. Yeah. Oh, that's that's really interesting. Uh, question's been on my mind uh, because I'm looking at building a 
building a 6BR. Um, and a lot of people are running quite long barrels on their 6BRs yep. for PRS now to try and get a little bit of speed back to yep. you know close the gap on those hotter 6BRs. On the velocities, yep. Um, I couldn't figure out in my head how a tiny little BR case is still making speed, you know, gaining speed in a 28-inch barrel or even the Bentress guys maybe running 30, 31. Explain this to me. Does barrel length affect pressure or is the longer barrel purely so your case can keep burning powder? Like, like, like does the powder completely burn in the case and then the bullet set in motion or is the powder burning the entire time that the projectile is going down the barrel and if you have a longer barrel you're obviously giving it more time to gain more boost by burning burning more powder. In my head, I went, well, in a 28-inch barrel, I would have thought that BR would have run out of, burnt all its powder and then now be slowing down because it's got nothing else behind it pushing it. So I don't, I can't quite get my head around the logic of this. So maybe barrel length and pressure and velocities is a question for you to, <laughs> to answer okay. for me. It's a case of diminishing returns. Right. There is a band which um, extra barrel length will give you extra velocity, but the amount of powder burnt is hugely influenced by the speed of the powder burn itself or the burn rate of the powder, mm -hmm. right? secondarily by the length of the barrel. So if you've got an extremely fast burning powder, you can have complete combustion yep. uh, in, a, in a relatively short length. Uh, and in some of the slower burning powders, you might need a barrel 40 foot long to, to, yeah, to, right. to burn. I mean, that's an, obviously a ridiculous um, <laughs> uh, exaggeration, but um, you can. Uh, it, it is dependent on the amount of resistance mm -hmm. that the bullet uh, applies to the cartridge inside the barrel, mm -hmm. the burning rate of the powder. So it's a bit of a how long is a piece of string question in that... Um, all of these things influence. Now, even if the powder is completely consumed, uh, say 90% the way down the barrel, you still have this massive ex uh, gas expansion mm -hmm. behind it, still driving it forward. Yep. Now, obviously, if it was a 40-foot long barrel, the pressure would get to a point where it had diminished to the point where the barrel, uh, the bullet wouldn't even leave the barrel yep. because the, the, the frictional resistance would be too great for the amount of pressure behind it. Yep. So there is a, uh, a, uh, a feet per second uh, rule of thumb that can be applied to an extra inch or, a, or, a, or an inch of uh, barrel loss, but it still operates within a band. Mm -hmm. So uh, if you're talking between, say, 20-inch and 30-inch, yeah, there's a rule of thumb that you can apply. Mm -hmm. But when you start going from 16 to 14, which is in, in most states illegal, mm -hmm. um, the relationships and the rate ratios change. Okay. Right? So within the band and a rough rule of thumb, um, look, the guys that are going to 32-inch barrels using small capacity cases are really trying to wring the last... Uh, foot per second yeah. uh, of velocity gain out of it. But I tend to dismiss that as a worthwhile objective and try and match the nodal point to the barrel. And that might mean docking an inch off the barrel or ordering a barrel that's two inches longer just so that you can find the nodal point. Mm -hmm. 
uh, more Extrapolate accurate. on that what you mean by nodal point of the barrel. A, a nodal point uh, is where the bullet leaves the barrel consistently. Yep. And consistency is foundational to accuracy, but they're not the same thing. Mm-hmm. Right? Now, the nodal point for a particular bullet and a particular charge will be different from bullet to bullet in a barrel. And powder to powder too, and right? Pa- of course, and powder different to powder. Rates, yeah. So um, if you're looking for a nodal point, generally speaking, the shorter the barrel, yeah. the gap between the nodal points yeah. is smaller. So it's actually relatively easy or easier to tune a shorter barrel than it is a longer barrel. Right. Because okay. the gap between the nodal points is further apart on a longer barrel. And it's and, and the best way to consider that is a guitar string. Mm-hmm. If you watch a guitar string being plucked... Um, Vibrates. You, you, you can see the, the sine wave <laughs> that the string uh, operates in. And the longer the string the further the oscillation points are apart, mm-hmm. right? And it's exactly the same with the barrel. The barrel is just a guitar string with it's hollow and the bullet's passing up. Yeah. But there are a number of concussion waves. That you've got the, uh, the sine wave pattern, but it's elliptical because you've got rifling in there that's twisting the bullet. Yeah. So the sine wave is not vertical. It's, ellip- it's, it's elliptical. Yeah. Uh, but you've also got concussion forces running forward and back, and there's I, I think there's four different concussion waves. Yeah, yeah. And what you're trying to do is make sure that all of them come together at one particular point so that when the bullet leaves, you get a consistent result. So that's a nodal point. Sometimes that means for your particular um, concoction yeah. that a slightly longer or a slightly shorter barrel would work. People are often reluctant to... Uh, adjust their barrels, shall we say. Yeah. So the only way you can do that sensibly uh, most of the time is to adjust your load so that um, you can either reach forward with higher pressure to get it come, to come to that um, mm-hmm. uh, gateway point yep. or back it off a little bit. Yep. So um, sometimes you'll find that uh, a lower load will be far more accurate than a, than a higher pressure load. And I'm far more interested in accuracy than I am velocity. Mm-hmm. Right? So uh, if somebody says to me, um, I'm getting 29.50 and I'm only getting uh, 29.95, if I'm shooting five cent pieces and they're shooting basketballs, it doesn't really matter because yeah. I don't, it doesn't matter how fast a bullet's going uh, if you're missing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right? Uh, I, would, <coughs> I would much rather have it right in the zone and, and hammering. Uh, and if that means going higher or lower in pressure, mm-hmm. as long as it's within the safety band, I don't care. Mm-hmm. Um, it, what's maximum velocity? It, there is a school of thought: that the higher, the better. Uh, but from my point of view, it doesn't really matter because if you know what the velocity is, you now know what the drop is going to be. And it's not a matter of, is it going to drop? Of course it's going to drop. Yeah. The issue is, do you know how much by? Yeah. And is it going to do the same thing? And is it going time? to be accurate? Uh, so, yeah, uh, and obviously the accuracy um, objectives for a bench rest shooter as opposed to a PRS shooter as opposed to a game hunter are all going to be different and circumstance specific. Mm-hmm. Is powder burn rate 
a topic to be discussed when you're talking about barrel life. So people talk about barrel life as far as pressure and as far as, you know, how much powder is burnt. You know, they talk about overbore, underbore. So, you know, if, you've, if you're burning a huge amount of powder, like, a, you know, in a smaller hole, that's yeah. obviously going to cause more wear. But I'm talking burn rate. So let's say I'm looking at running 2206H or uh, 2208 or 2209 mm. or something. Is that faster burning powder going to be hotter and wear the barrel out quicker or the lands out quicker than what the slower colder powder will do? I believe that there are more important issues at play than that. Right. Powder residue has a high carbon content. and Carbon um, is foundational things like diamonds and carborundum and things like that. Um, the issue is that carbon being a very, very uh, hard and abrasive material, you want less of it, not more of it, sandpapering away on your throat. Right. Right? Uh, so what you're uh, saying is if, if you can burn more of it... If you, if you b- burn a faster powder, you will have, generally speaking, less carbon residue chewing away on your throat when you fire the next round. Right. right, because it's you're basically fire lapping your throat every time you fire around. So ideally, you want less carbon, not more carbon. Right. But that shouldn't be the determining factor because the the determining factor is the case capacity, and the ideal powder for that uh, in that case behind that bullet uh, to give you the ultimate performance. And and if you lose a little bit of uh, barrel life because that was the ultimate. Uh, performing power then that's what you do the in my view by far and away the biggest uh, challenge to barrel life um, is twofold is it or isn't is it or isn't it coated does it have a friction modifier in it friction modifiers have been assessed by people like norma and demonstrate a clear advantage to throat wear but even after that i think the most important uh, issue to uh, barrel wear is how much ammunition you fire, how quickly. Right, strings of fire, the way, so, the way in which you So fire if, if you're cranking 20 rounds through in two minutes um, in, uh, in a pig cull or something like that, uh, you're going to do more damage to your barrel uh, if you fire that same 20 uh, rounds over 40 minutes. Yeah. Right? So I think that it's a valid question, but it's it's the it measurable difference in a in a hot powder versus a cold slow powder is well the, on barrel life is so minuscule to too many other different well, things. When you like, start the, the the thing of it is when you start looking at things like say a six br, mm. your powder options are fairly limited. Yeah, uh, and the amount of carbon left between. Uh, 226H and 2208 is is so minuscule that I wouldn't even take it into consideration. Whichever one shooting. Whichever one works is the one you (laughs) use. And if a case is ideally suited to 2206H, you're not going to be putting 2225 in it. No. no. Because it's just ridiculous. It's just not going to happen. Yeah. Right? So whilst there's a difference there, it's not really an option. So what you're saying is per calibre, 
the spectrum of what you can safely run is already very close together. Yeah, you can't run H one thousand in a in a six br like you know. It's so it, it's so not, it's just it's not going to yeah, not going to get three logs in there or whatever. Yeah. So like the differences in those powders. Uh, as stark as it is, yeah, it is is not really on the radar because you can't get them in that. You can't and get that broader spread in each in each caliber. And yeah. in a three hundred normal, a two two oh six, two two oh six H is going to send you to heaven quicker than the, <laughs> yeah. the game you're aiming at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Okay. That's that's really interesting because you see a lot of talk online about people talking about oh this powder's nice and cold and I got heaps of barrel life and and I've always thought. I don't know if there's any truth to that, but the I biggest issue, well, the the other variable too is that it's very very hard to make comparisons because one barrel might wear better than another. Yeah, there are differences in barrel steels. There are differences yeah. in ban- barrel manufacturing technology. Yeah. And well, there's it, a difference in assembling it too. Whether your yeah. gunsmith did a good job, or really, you know, nicked things up with yeah. the reamer and made a bit of a Bit of a mess in there, but, or whatever. But, you know? but a, a classic example would be a hammered forge barrel is very differently structured uh, and harder than, say, a cut rifle barrel or a pull button barrel. And to say that I got brilliant life out of this barrel, I'm not. You can't compare them because mm. they're not apples to apples. Mm. They're apples to oranges. Mm. And uh, you know whether you go down uh, the hammer forged or the cut rifle will come back to the cartridge choices you, you made and what barrel options are of, uh, are actually on the table. Yeah, um, let's lead into primers then, like primer selection. I know you've got a personal favourite. Um, mm. I'm glad we agree on it too, because it's the same, mm. same for me. But uh, talk about the differences in different primers and maybe different brands and what the differences are, but also like how you go about selecting the right primer for what you're shooting you know sometimes there's the option there to run a a magnum primer we had some questions about people asking Mm. you know when do i run a magnum primer and what is the difference between a magnum primer and another primer what's the difference between a match primer and a non-match primer and which primer is going to work with my powder and things like that so what's your take on on those that's an extremely challenging question Uh, it's a valid question but I think the first place to start is with a powder manufacturer's recommendation for a particular uh, cartridge. Because most of them listed, don't they? All the books, it'll sort of have yeah, your, generally your speaking, minimum and max, and normally they'll say what yep. what primer they use to, to yep. get those specs from. But gen- And whilst that's true, there just seems to be some magical partnerships, like um, uh, a 210 or a 210M, 210M with um, 2208 and a 308 works really, really well, mm-hmm. um, of, the, of the 210 and 210M being a federal product. Federals, yeah. Federal now, matches, yeah. And yet in my 243, which is a very similar case but using a, a much faster lighter pill, in my rifle it won't shoot with a 210M. It will only shoot with a 215. Okay. And I have customers who've had exactly the opposite result. So there are some cartridges where it's Arthur or Martha yep. and it's really, really hard to know. But generally speaking, you would never use a 215 in, say, a 308. And why it happens to go that way on a 243, I'm not entirely sure. Right. Uh, I just note that those uh, nuances occur. But, you know... 308, 7B57, and a lot of the cartridges in that league are using um, reference one powder like 2209. 
reference point one of 2209 means anything faster than that, uh, sorry, and you've got 2208, 2206H are faster than that. Mm -hmm. So that's the midpoint and anything that's sl uh, uh, slower. slower than that. that, that that's, uh, faster or slower is centred around 2209. Right. Okay. So... In those cases. In those, in, yeah. Well, generally speaking, anyway, the, the burn rate, that's pretty much universal. It right. does vary from case to case, yes, and by how much it varies, but the burn rate of a particular powder isn't actually m measured in the case. It's, it's, it's another reference point right. yeah, yeah. that the powder manufacturers worry about, and I trust them to do it. They've got yeah. three PhDs running, yeah. running yeah. that gig, and I'm not going to yeah. pretend I know how they do that. But where I was going with that is that as a general rule, reference rate 22091 and faster, you use a standard primer. Mm -hmm. And when you start getting up into the big 30s and above or 7mm rim mag, you'll often find a better result with a, a magnum primer. Now, the difference between a magnum and a standard primer uh, is described in terms of brisance. And brisance is the intensity of the flame and the duration of the flame, which is used to ignite the powder. And a slow-burning powder needs a higher-intensity ignition. Yep. A fast-burning powder doesn't need, doesn't need it. Right. And if you've got a high-intensity primer in a fast-burning powder, you're introducing uh, a variable uh, because you don't know exactly how much of that powder is going to get right. flashed from one to the other, but that variance diminishes with slow burning powder so uh, you'll get a much better result with say a magnum primer mm -hmm. uh, that, as opposed to a standard primer in the really big stuff like um, 300 norms 338 laps yeah and and you may not have that result in a um, 375 h and h simply because you're going back to a, um, a faster powder right okay uh, so that's why i say always start with the man powder manufacturer's recommendation and only vary it if you've got a strong case to adjust it. With is there do primers change uh, pressure? So, like if you were to run a, um, let's say you ran a Magnum primer in a just a three hundred eight or a six five Creed or something, mm. is there disadvantages to running that Magnum primer? That's yes. and and can you run into changing pressure spikes and things like that? Yes, you can. Um, and as a general rule, that will happen but it is not an absolute or universal. I've been surprised along those lines, but only occasionally. Yeah. Sometimes going to a more intense uh, uh, primer will sometimes drop the pressure, but you're talking half a percent yep. uh, of the yep. time. Not, yep. uh, if you were going to go to the bank and put you know, your life no, savings yeah. on it, you were going to say that a high-intensity magnum primer is going to increase pressures. Okay. Yeah, so basically what you're saying, if you don't need to be running it, there's not a huge advantage to going to it. Like if you Correct, and yeah. the only reason you would need to is because you're running a, uh, a large-capacity case running slow-burning powder. Right, yeah. Um, so, because I know it just it gets overwhelming for a lot of people. They're like, oh, I've got to try and figure out what powder to use. I've got to figure out what projectile to use. Then I've got to figure out what the seating depth is and what the yeah. charge is. I And I know for myself, then primers was something i just didn't even want to look at when i was getting into reloading i was like there's too much going on i just want to i'm going to buy a whole heap of a primer that i you know did a bit of research 
got a box of a thousand federal gold medal matches, um, large rifle primers, and just went, you know, like I'm gonna find a way to make these work. As a general rule of thumb, is a load is not really going to become be defined by a primer. So like if you you know the the difference between a a federal two hundred five and a CCI four hundred and fifty, right? The difference is what I'm kind of what I'm kind of getting at is is there going to be a point where you go yeah couldn't get this load to shoot and the reason was you just needed to switch primers or very rarely like if you've done your your seating depth test to a very good degree and you've done your ladder test with your powder charge to a very good degree mm. the swapping of a different brand of primer can make a difference. But the difference, um, oh, it certainly can make a difference. But the the, the difference uh, in terms of importance comes down to the application. Um, you might get uh, an improvement of two, three, or four mil of Im- of uh, dispersion. Yep. Uh, at which is critical for a bench rester. Mm-hmm. But to a hunter, it's irrelevant. Mm-hmm. Right. So is there a point in going down that path? Well, sometimes there is, and sometimes you have no choice. Yeah, what's available. But especially in the current market when your primer or whatever of choice is just not available and now you have to look at what is available and see what can be adapted. So um, as a general rule of thumb, what I find is that whatever the reason is, whether it's thickness of material or hardness of material or anything else, CCIs and prime uh, and federal are made in the same factory. Yeah. But they don't behave the same way. And why, you'd have to go back to them and ask. Mm. But I do note that, uh, I, and my preference for federal is simply because they seem to show pressure signs before the CCIs and, and, other, and other brands. And that's because they're softer? Well... They just seem to so show sign of distortion mm-hmm. uh, more quickly than some other primers. Which is and advantageous. I, well, in, in my case, I want the primer to tell me mm. that I've got pressure issues before something else. Like I don't want to see head separation or cul- ba- uh, uh, case bulging or massive uh, case swipe or yeah. uh, other issues. I want to see that the... That I want primer to tell me T- that there's an issue first when you're arriving yeah and the, pressure th- does that mean there's anything wrong with the cci primers or the wolf or the rws not at all not at all but what it, it does mean is that you now got to look for other issues of pressure mm. at the same time or ind- independently of uh to make sure you're still within the safe limits yeah uh and I, I just simply prefer to uh, use the prim- uh, the federals because it tells me first. Uh, other people go and measure their cases with micrometers and all the rest of it, but to me that's um, a little silly because it, that'll all come down to the tolerance of your chamber. Mm-hmm. And if you've got a sloppy chamber, that's not at all helpful. Yeah. Um, maybe let's run through some of the... I'd be interested to hear some of the gear that you use to, to reload. What What... What press you'd have a you'd have a huge range a huge range of presses I imagine for the amount of different stuff you're testing, mm. but for your personal rifles that you shoot with either hunting or target, I'm interested to hear what what press you're running, what dies you're running, and um, just a little bit about your process and on, on what your your brass prep. I know you're big on the primer pocket cleaning. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, well, basically, um, I have four. I had five. Now I've got four presses, and they're all different. 
they're all when I say all different, they're all different brands, but they're all oppressors. And yeah, there are coax, and there's a whole bunch of other uh, different styles of presses. Um, even though there are some significant advantages in going to other styles of press, the Arab press has never failed me, mm-hmm. uh, and they're producing results that are more than acceptable. And I'm of the school: if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Um, we've got. I've got plenty of products that are producing EOSs and SDs that are all single digit, uh, great accuracy, and I'm sitting back and thinking, well, I want a thousand dollar press to improve on what, mm. and and I can't see the case for it most of the time, and and for the guys that are out there that are using high value, um, high precision loads that are, are using, you know, uh, you know forces et al. Yeah. Uh, Happy days. Good luck to you. Um, but for more than eighty percent of my loads, I'm just using a, a, a Hornady lock and load. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I do use others. It's just that that's uh, that's what works. That, that it, it works for me. My um, die settings are all set. In it goes. Snap on. I do check it. Uh, at the beginning and during to make sure that there hasn't been any shift in some way, shape or form. Mm-hmm. But it's really quick, it's really easy and it's producing results that are more than acceptable. Mm-hmm. Do you run, uh, for your resizing, do you normally run bushing dies or are you happy just to run standard? I only run bushing dies in specialty gear, not my hunting gear. Mm-hmm. Uh, I run bushing dies for things like the 300 Norma, but... Uh, f- that we're, we're seeking a higher level precision, precision over much longer distances. It's one of those things where is what's important. And most hunting rifles have a, an application of no more than about 400 metres, and many of them much shorter than that. And bushing dies and all the fancy gear and, and, and measuring to 0.02 of a grain of powder and all the rest of it, at 400 metres is a bit ridiculous. Yeah. Um, and for most of the guys that are hunting at no more than 200 metres, it's just like, what? Yeah. Why? Yeah. So uh, yeah, I'm finding that even though on the bullet side of the equation, Hornady are a competitor, there's, I have no qualms or problems about using their presses and some of their gear yeah. Yeah. Um, because it's producing a, a more than acceptable result. Yeah. Do you use an expander mandrel to set neck yeah. tension? Yeah. 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 Uh, well, on some on some of the on, on some of them, and I just use an, uh, an ordinary expander button for the hunting cartridges. Yep. Um, the trick is, uh, or the objective is to minimise your uh, work, work hardening or the, or, yep. or the uh, malleability of the brass. But there also comes a point too that if you're doing big numbers, uh, the the speed of the process yes. and uh, it becomes part of the equation. And When's it got to be done yeah. by and all of that kind of stuff? And despite the fact that uh, it's probably at the more primitive end of the equation, uh, if it's working, why change it? Yeah, I totally agree with you. What about how about throwing powder? What are you? Are you beam scale? You use electronic throwers? What are you? I use beam scales probably for thirty years, mm-hmm. and I bypassed the intermediate electronic stuff. Uh, and when I went from beam scales, I went straight to the A and Ds. And that's mostly because 
we're doing so much loading and doing so much testing and all the rest of it. Time is important. And uh, the A&D process just throws really accurate charges to very tight tolerances very much more quickly. That's the A&D auto trickler uh, yeah, the whole routine. Yeah, yeah. the uh, the A and D of the scales and the auto trickler is obviously the powder uh, and the trickler. Yeah, yeah the is, is, is a separate scenario. But yeah, we do that simply because it just saves so, so much time. Mm. But if you've got one cartridge and you're only loading uh, uh, twenty fifty rounds and you're doing that every six or twelve months, there's absolutely no need to spend that kind of money. It's no. not necessary. Yeah, and you can get uh, I. I fail to see the field performance difference for 100 200 metres in going between those two extremes. Yep. Yeah, totally. Um, do you have a, a specific brass prep process? Um, mm. Probably it's going to vary from your match stuff or your long-range stuff to your, to your hunting stuff. Yep. Is annealing in that process and what are you doing for cleaning as well? Well, I know that... Plushy uh, uh, likes to anneal everything. Yeah. Uh, and I understand his case for it. And when you look at his results and when you look at his case life, it's really hard to argue and say that he's not doing a great job. Mm. Right? But I don't do it that way because I'm not firing the same volume volume of the one case all the time. Mm. I'm using a very much broader spectrum because of the work that we do. Um, so I tend to fall back on the principle that was um, uh, uh, explained in uh, uh, Applied Ballistics where they um, tested the performance results uh, of brass from brand new to second firing, third firing, fourth, blah, blah, blah. And in the example provided, the most consistent was on firing number three, and then it started to go downhill. So my view... And this was without annealing? This was just... Yeah, without annealing. Yeah. But once it gets to uh, firing number three, that's when you start annealing. Yeah. Right? So that's just... In your... uh, uh, Yeah. That's just a personal view, and that's based on the research that's been done, limited as it is, uh, and quite anecdotal. Um, I haven't seen anything to suggest that I need to do more work because the results we're getting are great. So why take on work you don't need to? Mm. But then I'm not trying. I'm like unlike Simon. I'm not trying to get 28 reloads out of one particular case. Yeah. Um, uh, and th- th- that's the the kind of sort of uh, v- uh, divergence. You know, he's got a, a slightly different. Uh, Objective to myself in that one, yeah. But is annealing important? Yes, but I wouldn't do it in the first three uh, mm-hmm. firings. After that, because uh, after the first three firings, the case is now fully expanded and matched to your chamber, and hopefully your dies are too. Yeah. And now you've got a consistency there that doesn't need to be manipulated, and all you need to do is make sure that it feeds again by full length sizing it, mm-hmm. and then uh, 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 and then anneal. Awesome. Well, we might start to wrap this one up. Is yeah. there anything that you feel like you wanted to add in that that we haven't covered? In I, I think it's, it's important to do um, uh, identify uh, the discrepancies between neck sizing and full length sizing. Yep. Um, some of the bench resters tend to love the idea of neck sizing only, 
just about everybody else may start with neck sizing only, but almost universally end up on full length resizing mm. because chambering the cartridge is far more important. Yeah, than saving some brass life or well, or, or what have you. But yeah. um, the the other thing too is that in whether it's a, a PRS style thing, uh, a stuck case is there, there goes your comp. Yeah, and in a hunting situation, there goes your hunt. Yeah, the, yeah. there goes your hunt. So yeah. the, uh, uh, case, oh, sorry, um, feed reliability um, uh, is a higher level pr- priority. Yeah. And the other thing too is that those chambers tend to be. Um, uh, operating in dirtier environments and uh, uh, re- tend to require different different Toler- tolerances, more leeway for your tolerance, uh, yeah. which so so we've got to be careful that whether it's uh, PRS or long range or, or, or hunting application, the principles that apply there are not bench rest. Now, uh, everybody seems to want to get this ta- one bullet hole tack driving accuracy out of their hunting rifle. Yeah. Which cost them six hundred dollars, and want to compare it to a ten or twenty thousand dollar bench rest rifle, <laughs> yeah. and, and and aren't happy until that happens, yeah. and burn out barrels in the process trying. Yeah. So, so the, the, it's just a bit a, a question of matching objectives and keeping it real. Yeah, I think that whole neck sizing versus full length sizing thing I've seen is it's it's almost pretty gone. Now. Like I think it's mm. changed. Like even even the bench rest guys as well. You know they're, they're willing mm. to go. Yeah, well, full length size. Why would I not? Mm. We can still get that accuracy. It's not yeah. not necessarily robbing any accuracy. And many people start uh, uh, neck sizing only believing it's the way to go, but very few stay there. Yeah, yeah. No, that's good, mate. Well, thanks for coming on again. We'll, I'm sure we'll do another one. Um, but uh, it's been awesome having you, mate. That's I've got a lot of things to take away from that. My uh, brain is tired from uh, <laughs> taking on information. So we'll wrap it up. Thank you, mate. Thanks again to Projectile Warehouse for making these podcasts possible. Thanks, uh, Steve Hurt from Outer Edge Projectiles for coming on. And please, guys, go have a look at his stuff. If copper projectiles is something that you've never considered before give it a consideration have a look into it see if it's going to fit your application and uh, challenge people to try it i know i'm going to try it in both a hunting and a target capacity so i'm keen to see how the results go there there's already people using it um that i respect and so i i'm, I'm excited to have a go so outer edge projectiles steve hurt thank you very much <laughs>